Welcome to Polling Matters. My name's Leo Barassi, standing in for Kieran Pedley, who is now deeply regretting his choice of holiday dates. Snap election it is then, and lots to talk about. To go through it all, I'm joined by Lawrence Yantelipinski, formerly of YouGov, now a freelance consultant, and Connor Pope, deputy editor of Progress. Gentlemen, welcome. I'd like to go through the parties and talk about what they're each facing uh, in a minute. But first, I want to talk with you about the big picture, where we are in the polls generally. Uh, Latest, it has Tories on 48, Labour on 24, Lib Dem 12, UKIP on 7, and that is YouGov's. ICM had pretty similar numbers with a very slightly smaller lead for the Tories, but basically same kind of place, uh, leads of more than 20 points. Um, uh, Connor, I mean, do you believe those numbers? Are the Tories really on twice Labour's score? I think if they're not the right numbers, they're probably not that far off. And I think that we have to be quite clear that the, the polling numbers clearly played a really big role in Theresa May deciding to call this election in the first place. Like, clearly she believes them. Clearly they are backed up by polling and research from within Tory headquarters because for a Prime Minister to go out on a limb and call an early election is always a, a danger. And doing it three years before you have to, you would have to have a pretty good reason to do it. And the idea that that is just about Brexit, I don't think is right. It has to be about how sure you are to be returned with not just a majority, but in this case, clearly what she thinks is going to be a much, much bigger majority. So that's really interesting. So that that suggests that when the polls were... Still showing Tory leads, but not leads that big. So a few months ago, when it was you know in the teens, do you think that means that she wasn't going to call an election at that point? Because I guess my interpretation now has been she'd sort of been planning this for a while, and it was essentially a lie that she wasn't going to. But actually, from what you said, it sounds like it's it's really the recent polling that might have tipped them into it. I, I think so. I, you know, it, it definitely feels like somewhere in Tory H, HQ there was a, a kind of a plan for a snap election behind glass that said break in case of 20-point lead. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the other reason for it, clearly, that the kind of broader and longer-term idea behind it is that this way she would get uh, longer before an election post-Brexit. Mm-hmm. So once uh, Britain comes out of the European Union in 2019, she will have time to kind of get the economy working again and look like it's on track. I think that is the broader picture. Yeah. But certainly I think the current state of the Labour Party in the polls will absolutely have been a factor in calling this election. So, so Lawrence, I mean, you're, you're recently out of YouGov. When you're, when you're doing political polls there, or when your organisation is doing political polls, are you sort of looking at the numbers and thinking, if this is showing a 20-point uh, a lead, then uh, that's going to be explosive and that's, that's potentially changing the political landscape? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as soon as you see a poll that's newsworthy and you're one of the first people in the country who've seen it, can give you that kind of slightly thrilling sensation that's tinged with utter fear that <laughs> something's gone horribly wrong with your polling. But I think Connor's exactly right. I'm, I'm, I'm sure if, if May was still polling 12, 13 points ahead, which would still be good, obviously it's not 20, but it, it was still enough to probably push that majority up a little bit further... I think she still would have been holding off as soon as she saw 20 points and confirmed by a couple of pollsters. And, and, and you know, the Tories are spending 
vast sums, I'm sure, on their own internal polling, their own research. They know the lay of the land. They know how the party's doing. I don't think the, the polls were that much of a shock. They are probably confirmation of what they were seeing. I think that the CPS ruling that was coming down, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service, you know, there's lots of factors at play here, and this is definitely one of them. In terms of whether or not you believe them, I mean, people, after what happened in 2015, people are going to disbelieve polls. But as always what it comes down to is, I think Rob Ford had a really good analogy, that if your watch was a couple of minutes fast a few years ago, would you then assume it was useless at telling what the time was? And I think that's a good way of looking at the polls. But that's not quite right, though, is it? Because it's not that it was a couple of minutes fast and therefore you think, oh, well, I just had a couple of minutes. It's you knew a few years ago it was a couple of minutes wrong, but you didn't know which way, right? Which matters if you've got to be somewhere at, exa- at an exact time, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, it's sort of it's relevant <laughs> if you've got to be somewhere at the exact time. It's less relevant if you've got to be somewhere within a sort of hour-long hour window or something. Yeah, and I guarantee you that every single pollster regardless of their politics, is delighted that this election is so conclusive. So that, as was the case in 1997, when the polls were still wrong, but nobody cared because they showed a large Labour lead, there was a large Labour lead, it didn't matter that they were wrong. So this time around, the pollsters kind of, in essence, have a free hit at trying to get their, make sure that what they've done post-2015 was the right course. And I mean, every every single one of them, I mean... I, I sat through, I'm not sure if you were there, but they, the very dry BPC meetings, you know, lots of additional work, lots of soul searching. All pollsters will be hoping that they've got it right. And I'm sure, and I'm sure most of them will have done. So, I mean, I believe believe the polling. I think it, really now it comes down to do, do you want to believe the polls? If you don't, you can make a compelling argument for why they're going to be wrong this time. Thanks. Um, so I want to move us on to talk uh, about each of the parties and we'll uh, we'll go through them in turns. Um, and just uh, for our order, we'll, we'll start with uh, the Tories as they're polling in the lead. So 20 to 24 points ahead at the moment. Seems they've got nothing to worry about, really. But I guess if I was... If I was Linton Crosby, I think the thing that would worry me would be last election, what worked really nicely was presenting a risk uh, of voting Ed Miliband with him uh, tying into the the belief that Miliband was weak and then using that to link the SNP's unpopularity in England. And that worked because people got that there was a potential for a hung parliament. And so they got the... the, It just seemed credible that this weak guy could be controlled by by the Scots. And and I've got to be honest, I didn't really believe that at first. I thought the campaign was was a really bad idea because I thought it just assumed too much knowledge of of parliament and uh, of uh, of how close the parties were. But anecdotally, at least... You, you still hear a lot of MPs saying that they heard that on the doorsteps. And I'm not convinced that it showed up in the polls, but certainly people talked about it. Anyway, now, I mean, if, if people get the state of the parties that well, I mean, aren't they just going to be looking at the polls now and say, well, there's definitely going to be a Tory victory. So Corbyn, who seemed like the Tories' greatest asset uh, coming into a campaign, well, no one thinks he's going to be prime minister. So actually, if you're Lindsay Crosby, then... Who's who's your bogeyman? How can you inspire inspire voters to to turn up and uh, and keep out Labour if no one thinks that they can win? Connor, I'll start with you. I think I think that's definitely one element of this. I think you've also got to factor in voter fatigue and the idea that across the country many people will have voted 
only a month before, as well as the EU referendum, as well as the general election two years ago. And then factor in as well the Labour Party ground campaign. The Labour Party will know that this is a defensive election. They will be looking to pull resources into places where the Tories will be attacking. And so because the resources will be uh, less thinly spread over key seats that they are trying to win, then you might expect that to have some sort of boost in terms of making it actually much more difficult for the Conservatives to make the huge swathes of gains that they're expecting, uh, which kind of brings us to, I think, what the Tories' biggest problem is, which is expectation management. Uh, I think Conservative Home today, Mark Wallace on Con Home, uh, had an exclusive about how the Tories' key target list uh, included Labour seats with over 8,000 majorities. It's like once you're actually giving that stuff out to journalists and, you know, that is getting out there, that is setting sky-high expectations. And already, I think, that's, I mean, there were there was some spin that, I can't remember, some journalists was reporting they were getting from, from Tory MPs saying that they were hoping for a 30 or 40 uh, majority. And already that seems farcical. I mean, you know, the expectations seem to be set set much higher than that. Uh, but, but Lawrence, I mean, you were, when we were talking about this before, you were, you were saying that there was some YouGov polling that I think slightly challenged... Uh, this this perspective that voters think that Corbyn's definitely going to lose. Yeah, that's right. So, so YouGov today, uh, they released it this afternoon. They asked a question about whether or not Jeremy Corbyn was right, that this isn't a foregone conclusion. And the results were a lot closer than I was expecting. I can't remember the exact figures, but I think it was something around about 45% thought that it was a foregone conclusion, around 35% said it wasn't a foregone conclusion. And the, the one stat there that would really concern me um, if I were Crosby and the Tories is the fact that UKIP voters were much more likely to say that they thought this election was a foregone conclusion, which gives them a free hit mm. at the next election. If the Tories are guaranteed going to win and May's talking about hard Brexit, everything that they want, then they have no, they, they, there's no issue, there's no problem with them voting UKIP. Whereas if they thought actually, you know what, this isn't a foregone conclusion, May might not get in, Corbyn, the Lib Dems, um, then I think it becomes a a much easier election for the Tories to win those UKIP voters that they've already started to win. You know, most of their increase in the polls is, is based on the UKIP vote coming back home, if you will. Going back, they've obviously, there's some churn there, they've got some Lib Dems, some Labours, but I think broadly speaking, the UKIP voters going back to the Tories... They need to keep those voters, which is why May has gone big on Brexit. Um, the Daily Mail's front page would have been exactly what May and her team would have wanted. And you this, know, this this was a front page that said said, said what we're um, going to leave the single market. You know, tens of thousands. All of this, all of these things that are, that are, that you could want to hear. So for May, she wants to. What, what the Tories are banking on is that their Remain voters are looking around at who else they've got to vote for. They're not going to go to Corbyn. From the Tories, even if you're a Tory Remainer, it's very unlikely that you're going to go to Corbyn's Labour Party. Some might go back Lib Dems, which is why I think we've got this campaign that they're running about chaos and... and the coalition uh, of chaos, the coalition isn't it? Yeah. Is because they're, they're trying to retain... That obviously worked so well in 2015 with yeah. Lib Dem voters, particularly um, in the south of England. So they want to keep them. And I think those are the two groups they're trying to hold on to, are mm. those slightly worried 
Lib Dem voters in the South who they need to hold on to those seats, yeah. and then also the UKIP voters that they need to win the seats from uh, Labour in the north of England. And I think that you can already see pretty clearly their two strategies. And bear in mind as well that the difference from the last election, which was in the end people went, oh, Ed Miliband might become Prime Minister, and I don't think he's up for it, up mm. to it. And that is why they didn't vote Labour. This time, even if they don't think that Jeremy Corbyn will become Prime Minister, the problem on the doorstep, and I have seen it time and time again, and I know hundreds of people who said the same, is that it's not that people are worried that Jeremy Corbyn might become Prime Minister. They just don't like him. And they will happily not vote for Labour on that basis alone. It doesn't matter what his chances of becoming Prime Minister are. They kind of want to just have him gone away completely. So what about the, the Lib Dem threat to the Tories? I mean, I think, uh, you know, Lawrence's point now was really interesting that it seems to me that May is pushing very much a kind of hard Brexit line, which obviously makes complete sense with winning over UKIP voters, but obviously lots of Tory voters voted Remain and, you know, fair enough, maybe they're not going to go for Labour, but I mean, the, the Tories, should they be worried about the Lib Dems? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that that's, a, it's, it's probably, it's, it's where the 2015 Tory cohort is most at risk, is those Remain voting Tory voters from 2015 who could bleed out to the Lib Dems, and they could do so in sufficient numbers that the Lib Dems start to make gains. If it happens in some of their northern seats, then the votes they're winning off UKIP and that Labour are losing start to get watered down by this slippage to the Lib Dems. So I think that that's definitely their their one area of defence from their 2015 electorate. And so I think that, like I said, I think that their their strategy, and I think, you know, the Brexit strategy is is a real concern for pushing even more of these people and solidifying them, which is why it's being placed alongside this don't let Corbyn come in, you need, you need a Labour, which is what happened in 2015 with... You know, lots of Lib Dems. I'm from from grew up in Cheltenham, uh, Lib Dem seat for most of my lifetime there, and it went Tory at this election. And it's precisely for that reason, for the whole reason that all those seats in the southwest did, because Lib Dems went to the Tories because they wanted a stable government. And I think that that's that's why we're still, even though it is surprising to many people, I think it's why we are still seeing now them using their 2015 lines on coalition. Right, well, but they're using it, but I suppose, you know, what what I'm still not convinced about is whether people are going to buy it. I mean, it makes sense to use it, but, you know, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, perhaps one, one of the things, and I, I, I hear you on the, the YouGov poll showing that it's closer than we thought, but I wonder if most people aren't yet paying attention to opinion polls, and I mm. wonder if over the yeah. course of the campaign people will, will get that. Anyway, I um, I want to, to move on to... Uh, to Labour, <laughs> if, the, if the Tories are 20, 24 points ahead and, it, and it's sort of sort of looking great, you know what what should what should Labour do? I mean, if if you're replace their leader, well, <laughs> you know that I think I think we're we're assuming that's not going to ha- going to happen now. But you've got to fight, got to win an election in in a few weeks or fight an election in a few weeks anyway. What is Labour's uh, or what's the problem with the Conservatives to which Labour is the answer? What's the, what, what's Labour's message about what's wrong with Theresa May? What, um, why why is she bad and they're good? And it might be that there's a different message for Labour's base and other people they might win, want to win over. Connor, I guess you'd be in a. I mean, good I think position. I think that obviously there are. The problem is that every single attack line is. Uh, 
encumbered in some way by the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is leader of the Labour Party. And so like, I think the obvious attack line would be to say that Theresa May is in hock to her backbenchers who are like hard right, like hard Brexit headbangers who are just going to just go for Brexit at all costs and it's going to be a terrible deal and they won't care, they will still call it a success. And the fact that actually if you really want a large, moderate voice that is going to argue for a good Brexit on good terms, then the best thing to do is ensure that there are as many Labour Party uh, members of Parliament in, in Parliament as possible because you've got 220 of there already and I think those will be people who, you know, are not going to be absolutely running to the wall with Brexit. But obviously the fact that you can't go around calling kind of uh, other people extreme when, frankly, that is the narrative that is built around your own party for two years. So I think the best thing that Labour can do is run a campaign that ensures that we hold on to as many of our MPs as possible. And that comes down to the same rules that it does every single election. And that is, means that voters will basically always ask themselves kind of five questions, which is, can I trust the party to manage the economy so that I can pay my mortgage? Will the schools be good? Will crime on my street be dealt with? Um, will the NHS be in good hands? And if you can be convincing on those things, then it kind of doesn't matter and you can get a, a solid base. Because I think people are always going on about how, I think we saw it a couple of years ago with the Lib Dems, where they went, well, you know, Lib Dems are doing this badly in the polling, but these 30 Lib Dems are all really popular local MPs. And in the end, it doesn't matter. And actually what you need is a, a good national average. And that, that is the best way to hold on to your MPs. And that is what we need. We, need, we can't rely on the fact that uh, local MPs will have run good campaigns and distance themselves from the leader, because that just won't <coughs> be enough. We actually need a national message that is good enough, that means that we can keep our head above water and keep as many MPs as we can. I mean, look, Lawrence, I guess a few years ago we were, uh, or a lot of people were um, suggesting that uh, Ed Miliband's team were foolishly going for a 35% strategy. I mean, is, is there a 25% um, strategy that, that Labour can, can go for now that, that sort of at least stops them going any further down? I, I, I just don't know. When, when, when I look at Labour's polling, and I look at its number, and I look at who it still makes up, who are still saying they're going to vote Labour, I can, I can see ways that it goes down from there. I really can. And I think we've seen May has had a boost in the polls. All the post-election polls have been had the Tories on a higher share than they had pre-election, which would concern you if you're Labour. That as the election focuses minds, do people go back to the Conservative Party? And... That's your big concern for Labour, though, the, the, not to be too despondent. So whilst I can see lots of areas where there are, there are Labour voters who think push comes to shove, even these people aren't going to vote for Labour, particularly if they get their Brexit strategy wrong. And, it, and it's so confused and so muddled and nobody, mm. you know, the right hand's not talking to the left. We've got McDonald saying that there's going to be a second referendum and we've got others saying that there isn't. So Labour, it needs to have a message. And, you know, my view is that Labour should, should have come out for a second referendum straight after, which, you know, you could say is stupidity, whatever. It's what I believe they should have done. And I think that there is a soft Brexit or a, uh, you know, thorn in the side. You know, you could use May's narrative back against her that we're going to be a thorn in her side and make sure she gets the right deal. You don't have to concede that you're going to run along and do whatever they want. 
And I think that, uh, but whatever Labour does, it needs to decide on a strategy and go for it. The one area that you would be hopeful if you're a Labour MP is that a fair chunk of Labour's reduction in the polls is their 2015 voters who say they don't know and won't vote. And so Labour's strategy would be, I would be spending a huge proportion of my polling budget on identifying who those people are who voted Labour in 2015 but now aren't sure or don't think they're going to vote and convincing them to come out and come back to the party. So so at this point, you're saying Labour's share is going down not because people are switching from Labour to Lib Dems or Tories, but because they're they're going into the the no-one column at the moment. There there is some churn there. Some of them have gone Lib Dem, some of them have gone UKIP, a few have gone Tory. But there's a, there's a, I think it's, I think it's around somewhere between a quarter and a fifth, something like that, of Labour voters in polls say, uh, from 2015, say that they don't know who they're going to vote for or they wouldn't vote. Obviously, ICM spiral of silence adjusts for that, which tends to increase Labour's polling a little bit. Most other pollsters don't do that. And I think that that's, that's a group of voters who Labour can go out and target and reach and get back to the party and say, look, I know we've not handled the last two years well, but give us a second chance to come back to us. Yeah. And and so I think that's 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 their strategy, is go and get those people who have a habit of voting Labour to make sure they come and do it again. Okay, so um, we, we did, uh, as usual, a poll with opinion this week that gave us perhaps something that looks... I don't know, maybe maybe like an interesting uh, uh, opportunity for Labour. Um, and, you know, we did it not knowing there was going to be an election, but but it's still relevant uh, and useful. What we did was tested uh, four of uh, the policies that Labour announced in the last couple of weeks and four separate policies that Labour haven't announced, but are things that have been floated either during Corbyn's leadership or suggested by him or, or one of his close allies. What we found was quite interesting. I mean, the first, I mean, there were three things that, that struck me. The first was the four, uh, the policies that had already been announced, the £10 minimum wage, raising pensions at least 2.5% a year, and requiring companies to place pay suppliers in 30 days. Those policies actually tested quite well and better than most of the more radical ones. So the more radical ones we tested that did less well were maximum, maximum pay ratios, nationalising the railways and citizens' income of £6,000 a year. Um, so that sort of initially suggested that some, uh, the, kind of, the kind of, I mean, you could call it continuity Miliband. I think that, that line's been criticised. You know, they're not literally the same as Miliband policies, but they are the sort of thing that I think you wouldn't have been astonished if it had come out, come out of the Miliband era. Um, but those, those did better than the kind of things that people might have expected of Corbyn. But there were two exceptions, and I think they're sort of interesting for different ways. So firstly, the free school meals in primary schools paid for by a tax on private schools was actually the least popular of the eight policies that we tested. And I, I mean, I was thinking about this and my feeling is that, so we tested them without saying that they're Labour policies, we tested them in isolation. My guess is people have heard that policy through the news and it's become associated as being a Labour policy. And so there's a bit of brand damage that people know <laughs> that it's what Labour has done and that makes it less popular, particularly with people who are already identified as not Labour voters. Because it just seems surprising to me. I mean, free school meals in primary schools and tax on private schools, that doesn't sound like it should be an unpopular policy. So I feel there's, there's probably a bit of a Labour thing. 
And then the last thing that really struck me as interesting, the really popular policy, the most popular of the ones that haven't been announced, was rent controls, putting, uh, I think we, we worded it along the lines that uh, stopping landlords increasing rents each year. And, and that did really well. <laughs> Something that is particularly electorally, electorally relevant is it did particularly the most well amongst the 55 pluses generation landlord uh, and least well amongst 18 to 34 generation rent which you know if you're looking for the people who turn out at vote and and the people you'd expect not to like that kind of policy it really struck me as surprising and I just sort of thinking look at the moment the Tories electoral strategy seems to be shut up be really boring don't invite journalists to your event and let Labour destroy themselves which is leaving the playing field open to Labour. I mean, just today, Corbyn has had far more coverage than than May. And if this is a Tories play, playbook, then that's going to carry on. So there's a lot of space for policy announcements. And you know, these these are just four policies that we tested quite sort of off the top of our heads. And for rent controls to do that well, it sort of feel, well, if what Labour are now needing to do is consolidate their core vote, well, it sort of feels like they should double down, go for, go for the kind of things that... Uh, might play very well with the base, rent controls, that, that sort of thing. I mean, maybe even the ones that did less well, nationalising the railways and so on. I mean, they're going to cut through. It's going to feel like there's a reason to vote Labour for people who who might just be a bit apathetic. I mean, Connor, do you think that, that makes sense? Um, maybe to some extent. I think the bigger problem here is that Corbyn is coming in as someone who has very set ideas about politics, about society and about how you fix um, the problems that we face as a country, and he, you know, he was talking in his uh, big first big election speech this morning about the the rigged economy, the rigged system. It's something that's kind of been bubbling up since um, January when he had that relaunch, which was briefed out as a kind of Donald Trump esque left wing radical who's going to come out and say whatever he wants and rail against the rigged system, just as Donald Trump did. It's like, well, free school meals aren't going to fix the rigged system. None of this adds up. This is just, you know, it, none of it feels like there is any sort of strategy behind it. It is just policies that, hey, people will, will kind of like this and then hoping that that works. We know that that doesn't work. We know that you can't just throw out policies that aren't connected, that, you know, sound good, that make a good sound bite and expect people to buy it. Because actually the average voter is a lot, lot smarter than that. And they just aren't buying it, I don't think. I, com- I completely agree with Connor. I mean, one of the great criticisms that I have of, of Ed Miliband's campaign and the Labour campaign in 2015, and as I think it was Axelrod said, you know, it was um, shopping cart politics. People could go around, they could look at the, the policies, and it was almost like you pick and choose which Labour policies you want. And Labour tested their policies relentlessly. They focus grouped them, they polled them, they made sure and they looked. These are really popular policies. Let's go out there. Look, everybody loves these policies. Uh, There was an article today talking about how the British public are much more left-wing than people give them credit for. And actually, you know, the public want these really popular policies. And the whole problem with Ed Miliband and Labour in 2015 was that there was no consideration of the overall story that these policies Sort of were. less than the sum of its parts. Exactly right. right. And so the overall story that was being painted by the Tories was that Labour were going to 
tax you more, they were going to spend more, they were going to be anti-business, they were going to be reckless with the economy, that they weren't going to be trusted. And Labour released all these policies that individually were all really popular, but every single one of them could be tied back to that broader story about Labour and exactly as they didn't want to be perceived and exactly how the Tories wanted them them to be perceived. And this was the whole problem with it, is that individually popular policies can lead up to a really unpopular strategy. And so without an overarching strategy that Labour are going to do, allowing their policies to be tagged with whatever negatives their opponents want, just having popular policies isn't going to win many votes at the next election. So I want to push you on this, though. I mean, so so that's great, but what should Labour do? I mean, you know, if, if it's a bunch, if, if we're saying there's the individually popular policies together aren't popular and Corbyn is, you know, has come in saying I've relaunched as, as, a, as a left-wing Trump, then is the answer a set of much more radical policies that, that fit, fit into that narrative? I mean, is, is there time to be doing that? Is that, is that something that's going to solidify the base? I'm not, I'm not sure there's time for it now, but if you, if you go and ask people on the straight street, what does Labour stand for? Who do they stand for? You know, what is it for? Not many people are going to be able to give you an answer based on an overarching Labour strategy. You know, it's kind of boring to talk about having, you know, an overall... You know, the Tory slogans tie into a perception of how they want people to view them. I'm not sure Labour has even worked out at the minute how it wants people to perceive it. So, Can I just say that's absolutely right. When Jeremy Corbyn made his statement about uh, the election happening on Tuesday, the first thing that he said was he said Labour relishes this opportunity to go to the country and make its case. He didn't use that bit of airtime, that section that will be used on the evening news, to say what that case will be. He just said he's looking forward to making the case. The, the sad truth is that two years into Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, he does not have a case to make. Yeah, and, and, and that therein lies part of, I mean, part of the problem is wrapped up in Corbyn. The other part of the problem is wrapped up in the complete lack of strategy, the complete lack of... We are Labour, this is why we are here, this is why we exist, and everything ties into that. This is how we want people to perceive us. And, and you know, again, to come back to the whole issue with Brexit and the second referendum problems that we saw earlier on today, you know, the left hand's not talking to the right, and I think it's because Labour doesn't know. I think they're scared, personally. I think they look left, they look right, and they can see threats from all sides, and it leads to this real indecision and when you've got that indecision, it's so comforting to latch on to popular policies and go, well, look, the public like this, the public like that, the public like this, the public like that. It's just easy to do that because you're terrified of actually coming up with something that could be disastrous or could be wonderful. And I think that's 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 where Labour's been for a long time now. So I'm going to use your uh, half-reference to the uh, 2015 Lib Dem slogan of look left, look right there uh, to, to move us on. So um, I think when the election was, was first announced earlier this week, my, my instinct uh, initially was, well, the Lib Dems have been doing so well, I was starting to think they were, if not going to win uh, Manchester Gorton, at least do very, very well there. And I guess I, I sort of immediately start thinking, well, how many seats are they going to get? And start thinking, well, they'll, they'll sort of come uh, two-thirds of the way back to, to where they were before 2015. But actually now people have started digging into the, 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 the reality of the seats they've got to, got to fight. And it sort of, it, it looks, looks more difficult. I mean, it sort of feels like they're not 
uh, I don't know, they're going to get above the, the teens, do you think? Or I, I wouldn't have thought they'd get more than 20, I think. If they got something like 20, that would actually be a remarkable achievement for them. And I think, again, Tim Farron is kind of facing a slight problem of expectation management here, which is that so many people, especially, I think, within the media, kind of want them to do well, uh, that they are um, kind of getting a bit carried away with how they will do. I mean, obviously, I don't think that will... Uh, affect Farron's place within the Lib Dems. I think he, he will he will have a good election and people within the party will definitely see that. But I was looking at um, the kind of 80 Labour seats that, that are most at risk today. <clears throat> of those, I think uh, the challenges in only four of them are the Liberal Democrats. And I, I looked through them. I wasn't even convinced that they would have all of those nailed on. Certainly, uh, Birmingham's nailed Southwark, I think, uh, Neil Coyle there has quite a high profile and I think he would do I think he'll do very well, I imagine he will cling on, I think that um, Burnley as well uh, in the post-referendum landscape uh, I'd be very surprised to see that go Lib Dem again um, and I think what has happened especially in the Labour Party is with people who are very pro-Remain you know, who actually were very unhappy with Jeremy Corbyn's performance during the referendum have kind of built up this idea of a Lib Dem threat because I think there is just a, a tradition within the Labour Party of kind of worrying more about losing votes to where you feel that Labour Party should be than where those votes actually always go, which is to the Tories. And the Labour Party definitely needs to be putting its entire focus on the Conservatives rather than the Lib Dems. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. The, the four seats, that, uh, the four Labour seats that the Lib Dems target, of their top 25 target seats... Four of them are Labour, five are the SNP, and 16 of them are Conservative seats. The Tories are up in the polls by more than the Lib Dems are up in the polls. So to then go and win those seats, you're going to need some real differential uh, swings and differential turns. I mean, isn't that plausible? I mean, it you is know, entirely the, and plausible. It comes back to stuff we were talking about earlier about uh, if the Tories have positioned themselves as very hard Brexit and the Lib Dems are the only party that uh, in England, at least, that's saying that they go, they want to roll back Brexit, then actually that kind of that kind of swing feels possible, doesn't it? Well, you're still looking at even to get to number 25 or so on their on their target list. You're still looking at swings of, of pretty hefty. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's definitely somewhere between five and ten percent mm. to get to get up to there. Which I mean, obviously, and I get this just a by-election, but Richmond showed that they can pull off astonishing swings. Yeah, I, I, was, I was speaking to people in Manchester recently, and they were talking about um, I think it was Withington, which you know Jeff Smith, who's a great MP, he's got a fifteen thousand majority there. And like they're saying, you know, but the Lib Dems could just come in and sweep that away. Like it happens so quickly, it doesn't feel like a particularly deep uh, vote. So I think there are, I think there is absolutely a potential there for these differentials to come in, and and the Lib Dems will sweep in with some really surprising results. But I think for it to happen to I the think kind of thirty or so seats, which some people are talking about, I, I don't. I, I don't see it personally, and I think that there there are there are two things that I think part of part of the reason why people have got the Lib Dem so high is groupthink around. They're looking at they're looking at two elements. One, the fact that the Lib Dems have positioned themselves as the only Remain party, and it's largely gone unchallenged because Labour are too worried about their lead voters to say no, you're not. Yeah. We are as well. Well, but they're not, are they? No, I mean, you know. And yeah. the second issue. 
is they're looking at what happened in Scotland. They're looking at the SNP being the yes party and then sweeping all their all Labour's yes voters. And so those two things are really making people think that it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And whilst I'm not going to be a complete moron and say it absolutely cannot happen, because there could well be a realignment in this election. I don't personally see it. I've seen no evidence of it in the polling. But let's say there is. It could happen and the Lib Dems could take huge swathes of seats off Labour. Mm. But at the minute, you look at the polling, the Lib Dems are up from 8 to 12%. It's yeah. not enough to worry Labour in its... You know, sixth, seventh, eighth target seat that the Lib Dems would need to win. It would need the things would need to change hugely in this campaign. To what? Like uh, so, and I just say that because it seems to me that the Lib Dems always say that they do badly until an election is called, and then and then their numbers tick up when people remember that they exist. Um, I and I just wonder, with in a couple of weeks, whether we might be saying, well, the Lib Dems are on fifteen points. You know, they still need to, to I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that a huge, hugely passes mustard. If you look at the last two general elections, actually in terms of seats, the Lib Dems have been wildly overstated by the media. Mm-hmm. In 2015, as I think I said earlier, you know, I think lots of people went, well, they've got all these popular local MPs who will cling on. And they went down to eight. And in, you know, 2010, with Clegg Mania, when, you know, he was like... Hugh Grant in like 1995 <laughs> or something, mm-hmm. you know, people thought that the Lib Dems were going to sweep through and take a bunch of seats and they actually went backwards. It was phenomenal. And I think that is clearly like something of a general election tradition going back to the, so- <laughs> well, going back to the Social Democrats in 1983 when people went, well, you know, the Social Democrats within a couple of points of Labour, what did they get? They got bugger rules. Uh, so before we move on from Lib Dems, I just want to quickly ask, I mean, is, is, is there any realistic prospect of an anti-Tory progressive alliance or, or any sort of, you know, formal or informal deals? I mean, what, what do you think, Lawrence? So my view, which I know is going to be different to most people. My view is, is a very simple one. One, that the public, progressive voting members of the public, would vote for the progressive party in their constituency by and large. If only Labour voters were... There was some YouGov polling that was released. It's pretty old. It was, it was done when I was still there back in November, and I've been calling for them to release it for ages. But it, uh, it showed that, I think, 70% of Labour, Lib Dem, Green voters would vote for the Progressive Party uh, if only the Progressive Party was in their constituency. So I actually think if you look, it, so the polling was out of date. I think it had headline figures, Tories 44, Labour 29. You look at the Progressive numbers and it went from, if it was a Labour candidate, Tory 44, Labour 39. Similar things happened. The Lib Dems, I think, were on 35. The Greens were on 33. So there is clearly a point to be made that the public would carry on voting for the Progressive Party. You know, maybe this would overstate it a little bit, there's always that chance, but I think on the public side, it could absolutely work. And I think, as Connor's about to explain, from the political grassroots side is where this probably all falls down. Well, I I think what you said, uh, uh, Lawrence, on Twitter about this the other day, in which you thought it it could work, but the, the problem was political. And it's like, I feel that's a bit like saying the reason that Leicester City can't win the Champions League this year is it's just a football problem. <laughs> that, well, that is a fundamental problem with the, with the entire idea. And, and I think basically what you come to whenever we talk about a progressive alliance is fundamentally what it is, is smaller parties doing better and the Labour Party doing worse. And while the Labour Party is the biggest progressive party in the country, I don't see what should push it towards doing that. And I think, you know, the, 
if you look at the political problems of why this wouldn't work, they're enormous. I don't think Tim Farron uh, would particularly want to be anywhere near associated with uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, at the moment. And if you look at, I don't know if the SNP kind of comes into your idea of what a progressive alliance would be, but that would basically mean the Labour Party cutting off an entire Scottish Labour Party and for all intents and purposes now supporting an independent Scotland. So the, the, the political problems that you would run into are absolutely huge. And I don't see how it could be seen as anything other, really, than what the Conservatives would like to portray this, the, all the opposition, as in this election, which is a kind of coalition of chaos. I just don't see how it would work. We'll talk a bit more about Scotland uh, in a future episode, but just uh, last of the party to go through um, UKIP. I mean, we talked we talked fairly quickly about it about them off air, and I think our feeling was generally that th- this isn't looking like a great election for them. No, I mean, in, in my opinion, if if Farage stands in Clacton, I think he's got a pretty good, you know, it's the number one ranked UKIP likely seat in terms of demographics. Selected a UKIP MP twice. I, you know, would imagine they'll be part of that UKIP vote. Will go to the Tories once Carswell hits the campaign trail for the for the Tories. Um, yeah, he's got a very strong personal vote there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think uh, I think if Farage, if he's sensible and if he's up for it, I'm not sure he's up for being an MP. He's too busy being an international jet setter and Donald Trump's. Uh, uh, gopher that I think actually I'm not sure he's got the stomach for it I think Banks would have got battered there because he's not a politician or a decent uh, campaigner I don't think so I think I that you were going to say human being no I'd never say that on air uh, but when the tape goes off um, but yeah so I think if Farage stands in Clacton they could win that seat I think other than that yeah. YouGov had them uh, their lowest level since 2013 I think ICM had their lowest level for a long time they're dropping all the time in the polls you, uh, Theresa May's targeting them and wants those voters. So really, I mean, there might be you know a wild card seat up in the north that they take off Labour. Don't see it personally. And I think yeah, this is probably we've reached peak UKIP and we will be on the wane for the next uh, until Aaron Banks puts his money into something else. I'd be fascinated to see how true that is. Actually, in the run up to the twenty fifteen election, I was becoming increasingly worried about just how well. UKIP were doing in um, Labour heartlands, especially in the northwest. And if you look at the how their potential collapse might affect the outcomes, uh, it could really completely change a, an, an enormous number of Labour seats. If you look at the kind of, in, I think in Hindland, uh, the UKIP had about nine thousand, and the Labour majority over the Tories is about four and a half. Hayward and Middleton, uh, you know, all across like Rochdale and Oldham, there is a lot of seats around there where it wouldn't surprise me if they were still able to really hold on to the the number of votes that they've got. But if those votes start going missing, I really have no idea where they're going to go. Okay, thanks guys. Um, I want to wrap it up with a question to to you both uh, about whether, uh, compared with where we are now, you see, uh, which is a Tory lead of some, somewhere between about 20 and 24 points, which is a sentence I didn't expect to hear myself saying so soon. Over the, the next six weeks, do you think that gap is going to open or close? I mean, for what it's worth, it seems to me that um, there's a wider gap between the Labour and Tory lead, uh, sorry, between... There's a narrower gap 
between the, the Tories and Labour than there is on this question of who's going to be the best Prime Minister. And it feels like that could push the lead even wider. But even so, my gut is still that over the course of the campaign, Labour will manage to claw, claw it back a bit. But honestly, that's based on my gut more than, than uh, really any solid analysis. And Connor, what do you think? Um, yeah, my, I mean, I, I should kind of be clear here and, you know, about what I want, which is definitely for the Labour vote to recover. Because as I said earlier, I do think that national average needs to be healthy in order to hold on to MPs. And coming from the kind of uh, moderate wing of the Labour Party, if you look at the seats that Labour are likely to lose, you have to go a very long way down before you start seeing kind of Corbyn MPs disappear. So actually what you are seeing is a huge swathe of uh, moderate, good Labour MPs who will suddenly disappear and so I really want the national average to start ticking back up. And I think that it will. I think that all of the stuff that we said earlier about people kind of not being as excited to vote in this election, and certainly with May's media tactic of trying to avoid all sorts of coverage, it seems, I think that the Labour Party will be able to recover some of its vote a little bit and the gap will shorten. I think I could probably make a pretty compelling 30 seconds answer as to why they're going to narrow and why they're also going to widen. <laughs> um, I think on the widen side, um, it's going to focus minds. I think the Tories will run a better air campaign and it will come down to Labour's ground campaign. Will these hundreds of thousands of new members turn out and vote? There's also a working assumption, and the group think is that the more that the public see of Jeremy Corbyn, the less they'll like him, the more they'll dislike Labour. We've not seen anything yet in terms of the Tory uh, attacks on Jeremy Corbyn. But by the same token, Jeremy Corbyn had a really solid uh, launch today. where And there is something to be said for a British sense of fair play and cheering on the underdog. And Jeremy Corbyn has had dogs abuse for 18 months from all sides. And if people see him and he comes across as this kind of slightly mild geography teacher, perhaps something might happen. And of course, something huge could happen in the campaign. There could be a huge bombshell. There could be, you know, a, a massive change that nobody has yet foreseen um, that could could have a uh, huge impact. So That's a minute. bit of a cop-out. Yeah. <laughs> <Well, it's laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, and the polls could be dreadful. Uh, <laughs> especially now I'm not... No, um, yeah, I, I don't... I, I just don't know. I'm really sorry. I, if I had to put my neck on the line, I'd say that they'll, they'll narrow a little bit into somewhere between a 16 and 20-point Tory lead. Well, Kieran Pedley is back next week and he has lots of plans in store to uh, to talk about this more, as you would expect. So Connor Pope uh, from Progress and Lawrence Jantelopinski, political and research consultant who is available for commissions. Thank you both very much. Our music is Happy Days by Scott Holmes, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>